Hello, welcome back everybody. Welcome to Emma and Tom's PGC podcast. And we're a little bit high on life at the moment. We've just been having rarers with our new yes. guest, <laughs> our shiny new guest who has joined us in our podcast studio, who, is, uh, who has made us laugh a lot. So if we sound a little bit high. <laughs> if only I pressed record sort of 10 minutes ago. <laughs> we are high on life. So without further ado, we would like to welcome our lovely guest, Jordan Allers, who is Programme Director for BA Primary Education with QTS at Cardiff Met. Before I let him give you a bit more of an idea about what he does, we just want you to cast your minds back. If I could uh, have some kind of sound effect over this in the edit, please, Tom. Nope. To <laughs> <laughs> episode two of our humble podcast, yes. where we had an episode entitled Coaching versus Mentoring. Can you remember, Tom? I did, and we extensively name-checked a University of South Wales lecturer by the name of Jordan Allers, who talk we'd attended, and we were being very enthusiastic about it weren't we we totally were and we're still very enthusiastic about it so without further ado jordan welcome to our podcast hello yes. both Thanks and our university me. you've yeah, come thank across you. from uh, our friends down in newport to I join did. us here in cardiff i did Met. i came over in june and yes yeah, so i've been here about six months now as emma said um, program director of the ba primary education with qts um, as we all do now, wear many hats. So I contribute to the PGC primary um, by way of science technology sessions. Uh, I'm also a university tutor for, for many students on placement. Uh, and then I contribute to sort of other non-QTS um, courses and programs in the university here. So I'm excited to be here. Great. Um, and just before we go into your research and we talk about talk about that in depth and detail, just give us an idea about your background. You've come from a teaching background and you've transitioned into higher education to just kind of a, a potted history, really. Sure. I actually obtained um, QTS uh, through the PGC primary here back in the days when it was referred to as University of Wales Institute Cardiff. Like uh, some student teachers, I was fortunate enough to be kept on in my last placement school. Uh, I taught for a number of years at Roos Primary School in the Vale of Gamorgan. Really, really lucky to, to have time there. Um, there were key senior members of staff there that oversaw my sort of student teacher um, development and, and the same staff then oversaw my you know early career development and things like that. About four or five years into that endeavour, I gave a guest lecture at the University of South Wales on mathematical reasoning to one of their cohorts. And at the time, as you do, I was really appreciative of the opportunity and just sort of left my details and said, if there's any further opportunities, just let me know. Lo and behold, about a week later, they said there was a common opportunity. Uh, again, as luck would have it, my uh, head teacher at the time at Roos and the governing body were you know, very supportive uh, of, of that opportunity for me. So I took that to comment and that eventually led into a sort of permanent full-time contract. So I stayed at University of South Wales for four years. Uh, and then again, this past summer in June, I transitioned to Cardiff Met. Uh, and here I am. And it sounds like the kind of unifying theme throughout that that potted history was that you had, as you've mentioned, a lot of kind of key figures who were guiding and, and mentoring you through your kind of stages of development. And that's become your bag, hasn't it? Mentoring. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it pretty much has. Uh, and often these things, you know, present themselves without, you know, you looking for them. Actually, at Roos, I was lucky um, that because I was, I guess, quite keen and, and willing to take on new endeavours, 
that the head teacher at the time had identified an opportunity for me to go along and do some sort of professional development as a, as a classroom teacher. And they had uh, a number of schools in the Vale had employed the services of a chap named Mike Hughes, uh, who was sort of an education consultant. And he, he had specialized in peer coaching and things like that. So my last couple of years at Roos Primary School, working in conjunction with other schools uh, in that network, I had my first taste of peer coaching and, and fundamentally the process as a participant and the impact and the benefits. So, of course, transitioning to higher ed, where mentoring is a huge part of our relationship with partnership schools, um, given that all of our student teachers, PTC or BA like, will have uh, a classroom-based mentor, they'll have a senior mentor. Um, so that process is fundamental in what we do. So there was just the opportunity for me to continue that endeavor. When I did my master's in leadership management and education a couple of years ago, you know, of course, to try and keep momentum and to keep learning and, and developing myself, I focused on, you know, aspects of mentoring and, and the role of senior leaders in schools. Um, at that time, I looked particularly at conflict resolution in Welsh primary schools and how um, that sort of training and development opportunities were or are assimilated in, in you know, staff learning and things like that. And then since joining here at Cardiff Met, uh, again, lucky enough to, to sort of be positioned um, by colleagues whereby I can continue to contribute to mentoring. I work with a colleague, um, Sally Bethel mm -hmm. and Lisa Fenn, of course, the program director of PGC Primary. The three of us um, collegiately are continuing to work with school partners to jointly develop our sort of mentoring processes going forward. So... Yeah. So we're really lucky to have you. I'm on a roll. You on are a roll. on a roll. Um, and something that we uh, were inspired by back in our second episode was the difference between coaching and mentoring. But before, So before we get into um, what you've been doing recently around peer coaching, could you give us a definition as best you can of the difference between a mentor and a coach? Absolutely. Literature has many variations. I kind of take a hybrid of Fletcher and Mullen 2015 and, and Adair 2006, where mentoring uh, essentially involves seniority, and it's really a platform for instruction and advice. Um, if you look at coaching, Road, Stokes and Hampton, um, they talk about coaching as a process of mutual support and collaboration, non-judgmental. They also maybe outline that coaching is more of a short-term endeavor with a specific foci in mind. It's, it's varied in literature in terms of are mentoring and coaching synonymous or are they distinct terms? Mm -hmm. um, Pask and Joy 2007, they talk about the mentor coach as being one term or person, but a lot, including Fletcher and Mullen, argue that they are absolutely explicit to each other. Um, Welsh Government 2014, you know, they really looked at mentoring and coaching and they outlined three discrete processes. They had mentoring as being a process, specialist coaching, and then collaborative co-coaching. But they're also quick to say that there's no intention to impose a uniform model. Mm. So I think it really comes down to what hat that professional is wearing at that time. I think individuals can be mentors and coaches. Mm. The best, I guess, layman term analogy I, I always give colleagues is, a mentor is normally someone who can do it or has done it, who is supporting a novice, um, mm -hmm. somebody who can't yet do it, who needs that, that direction. Mm -hmm. um, there's a bit of hierarchy there. 
Whereas coaching, I always think in terms of a sporting background, uh, I always think of, you know, top elite uh, rugby players, mm. um, the likes of Brian O'Driscoll, say, for Ireland. I always wondered at the peak of his game what a coach would be able to do for him, given that it's not likely he'd have a coach who was a better player than him. Mm -hmm. So a coach then becomes more of a facilitator that the best coach isn't the best player. So the best coach in school won't necessarily be the best teacher. It's just somebody who has the skill set to identify in others, um, maybe things that, you know, they don't see themselves. And then to catalyze, prompt, suggest. So there's not a lot of telling. There's more of a facilitation. I remember now thinking back to that second episode that we recorded. It feels like a really long time ago, Emma, but I know that we concluded that it wasn't as simple as saying one or other of those roles was the best or what students needed at a particular time. I I remember us concluding that actually early on, a student teacher would be pretty glad of having a mentor, somebody who could do it and model it and just tell them what to do. Absolutely. But we nowadays, we really want to see them kind of transition from that mentoring role to that coaching role where a teacher is actually prodding the student to do things that maybe the teacher themselves can't do. And I just find myself wondering, how do we create that skill set within teachers within partnership schools is it there already is it something that we can instill because I know for sure when I was a mentor we didn't have training particularly we were just left to kind of find out how to do it what's your vision for that kind of thing I mean and there's you know there's literature um, you know Harris uh, Alma Harris um, wrote a lot about Uh, peer coaching and distributed leadership. Uh, And she's one that would argue that schools uh, often have the ingredients necessary to ensure professional development. We just need to, uh, you know, capitalize. I think if you look at a a typical mentor in a school for any um, teacher training um, provision in Wales, um, they would hopefully have been identified as a mentor, A, because they were willing, um, B, because senior colleagues saw something in them in terms of their capacity to sort of nurture um, Mm. a student teacher. I think in terms of how do we ensure the coaching process, um, I guess, takes precedence over the mentoring process. I think that often comes down to the student teacher. Mm. One of the things I know we'll probably get onto later, I've read a lot of literature around this idea of educative mentoring. And in, you know, Langdon and Ward, um, Langdon 2017, talks a lot about professional dissidents. So whether the recipient of coaching is active or passive. Mm. So I think certainly having been a mentor myself in days gone by, if a student is presenting themselves as informed and keen and capable and reflective, then already that conversation, that relationship forms naturally. Whereas if a student is rather passive and is expecting to be led, is not really showing initiative or autonomy, it's very hard for that colleague to look at them and say, do you know what, I think I'm going to coach you because you seem to have capacity. And you see, you know, if someone's presenting as they need a lot of support, then surely then then that support's going to be offered. Um, so I think the individual student teacher, I guess, has a, has a lot to to, to do in, in that process. So mm. I think there's a lot of power they have in terms of what they present. And I wonder, just, just looking at um, some of the headlines of, of what you've been doing on peer coaching, is that the vehicle maybe of helping them to understand, um, you know, what that coach 
role is like and therefore be more susceptible to being coached themselves? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think that, you know, Cardiff Partnership at the moment, we have, you know, put a structure in place. We co-constructed a, a, a process with schools where one of the sort of formal um, responsibilities throughout their teaching week is team teaching. Uh, and we've been very open about um, how that could manifest. It could be with their classroom teacher, with other classroom teachers. It could be with other student teachers. I think if a student is looking at that opportunity and they don't phrase it as team teaching, they phrase it as peer coaching, we can go into sort of the process and the fundamentals in a second. But if they look at it as team teaching, by adhering to that process, they're already giving themselves an opportunity to benefit from that process. So they become a coach and obviously the, their colleagues become coaches. If we look at structure, um, and again, fundamentally, we, we've almost set the scene here. You know, we ideally place students in threes. Uh, a peer coaching triad, is, as we say, would be a three. There are a series of, of meetings and then each member observes. So you'd observe in twos. Um, so two of the three would observe one uh, for long enough you know, just to identify some what went well and even better ifs. Uh, and then you'd have a follow-up meeting and you'd repeat that process, you know, until everybody in that triad had been observed. So if we look at that process with our team teaching, I wonder, is there the initial meeting? I'm sure there is. Is there multiple two or three people observing one person, kind of like a lesson study approach? If you look at fundamentals, things like um, collaborative culture, I think, again, our process of team teaching um, part way enables that because again we're encouraging colleagues to teach alongside student teachers and, and student teachers alike. I know Mike Hughes talked a lot in 2013 about red hats and blue hats so if we were looking at a traditional peer coaching triad if we were looking at maybe school practitioners that it would be very hard to have a senior leader in a triad with somebody that they would then eventually line manage. Yes. But if we look at our relationship between student teacher and mentor, is mm. there still that hierarchy? Mm. Maybe. But if we look at student with other student, then we see a bit more parity in terms of role. Mm. So maybe by default, if you really want to harness peer coaching, you're potentially going to that student and student working together. Mm. Um, but it's, it's helpful to do it with your mentor as well, because there's a lot of modeling that can happen. Again, you know, use of a continuum. Um, use of a sort of a model like the grow model so that's your lens so whilst you're going through that process that you have a very specific identifier that you're trying to address or develop um, is, in each other sorry to interrupt you is, yeah, is the grow model is that the goal um reality yeah objective yeah yeah yeah, yeah absolutely. I, i'm quite interested in this because my my partner from the world of engineering okay. we talk about all the time on okay. this podcast sorry listeners um he, they use that in his in his workplace okay. a completely different workplace okay. so how does that feature um within peer coaching just so the listeners are yeah well I, again clear. is is you would identify a sort of an aspect of the grow model that you would want to i guess observe so peer coaching is is fundamentally non-judgmental um, you're looking at the learning rather than the teaching. Mm. So the person teaching, uh, having their triad members observe, is not under the microscope. It's more the quality of learning mm. um, and, you know, the engagement of pupils and or learners. Mm. And you're using that aspect of the grow model at whatever point of that continuum they're on to frame your what went wells. 
So the people observing are, are ideally providing three what went well. So these are things that could pertain to the teaching and the learning. We like to say they're takeaway things, things mm -hmm. they're, they're going to take away and embed or trial in their own practice. Mm -hmm. And then ideally there'd be one even better if. And again, that even better if would as close as possible link to that aspect of the girl model. Mm -hmm. And that's an open catalyst. It's really key that an even better if leaves the, the sort of the person being observed with questions, not answers. Mm. Um, things like, how do you know, how do you know pupils, all pupils were engaged at this point of a lesson? So the person posing that even better if is not suggesting that they were or weren't, they're just causing that person to reflect. Mm. And often the person reflecting will go through a process, they'll either try to verify, they'll try to suggest that it did or didn't happen, they'll try to give a reason why or why not. Mm. Um, the person posing the question, it's key that you don't respond. You, we're, we're not there to sort of put plasters over things and make everything okay. We're just, right, that's some food for thought. To um, empower, I suppose. Yeah, honestly, and, and, and that recipient then is left with nothing but an opportunity to reflect. And whether they agree with the intonation or what they think was being inferred with that open question or not, they're still in their own minds having to rationalize it, as we would, you know, we would. I find this really interesting, actually. I remember being inspired by the notion of posing questions as opposed to posing targets, which I guess in a mentoring approach would be really important, you yeah. know, something really yeah. clear and precise that a student teacher needs to work towards and know when they've achieved it. However, later on, when they're moving towards a, you know, a, a yeah. position where they can do it, they, they can answer the questions. And it made me wonder, actually, you know, how often I pose questions in my own uh, lesson observation feedback mm -hmm. and how much they featured in the um, kind of formative comments logbooks that we use here um, that my mentors write and, and and purely you know just out of curiosity really about whether that was something we as an institution mm -hmm. really think about yeah, you know, absolutely. The, the nature of yeah. our feedback yeah and, and I think that that's you know wouldn't be specific to our institution and I think that's a sector-wide um, question to ask of ourselves. I think of uh, one of our processes we have here is sort of a, a like a, a formative comments book where mentors are encouraged and, and they do this very well. It captures that, you know, nice dialogue they would have with their students anyways. They, you know, are invited to sort of write some feedback, some mm -hmm. sort of formative feedback on these books ongoing. But again, if you went through how many questions would be posed as a, instead of narrative? And again, that narrative, you did this well, you did that well, it was nice to see this, try that next time. Is that more mentoring than coaching? Because the student is very specifically reading that and, and quickly understanding what, what it is they're doing well and perhaps what needs to be developed, as opposed to having to generate that themselves. Mm -hmm. And again, we think about the feedback conversations after lesson observations or um, at quality assurance visits or progressive viewpoints and things like that. Voice domination. So how often do we default into sort of a mentoring role where we're telling the student things as opposed to just asking, you know, so whose voice takes precedence in those conversations? Mm -hmm. So a coaching conversation for me, again, would be coach just intermittently prompting or prodding with questions and just listening mm -hmm. and maybe making notes because as that person is sharing and unraveling, you know, and justifying and not, you know, they'll go through that process. We can capture some of their thinking for them and go, well, look, I made notes whilst you were feeding back to me. This is what you said in case you can't remember. Mm. Perhaps this is something you can go away and think about. Mm. Um, 
again, I come back to that sporting analysis. You look at, you know, the relationship uh, a top elite sports person would have with their coach. And I wonder, you know, how much can their coach tell them as opposed to just get them to reflect on, you know, their performance and what they felt needs developing and stuff like mm -hmm. that. Um, so I often draw those lines when I'm thinking about my conversations with student teachers is how much do I need to lead here? And going back to peer coaching, is it fraught with the same issues that we experience with pupils that we're teaching in relation to peer assessment in that if a peer coach is trying to give feedback or or indeed trying to pose questions to point their peer in the right direction of you know the learning that's taken place is timing important because I would imagine early in the year of well I'm thinking about PGC now perhaps slightly different for in the timeline of the BA would they be able to identify learning as well as they would later on in the year so is timing in relation to peer coaching important yeah I think um, if we look at Welsh governments in 2014 they had those three processes and I, I don't think they presented that as a continuum or like a linear journey where you'd start off with mentoring then specialist coaching then collaborative but if you look at that as a lens then I'd agree that the novice student teacher may require a bit more instruction mm. and direction initially um, and then they would gradually that that role, their relationship with um, class teacher, mentor and student would evolve. Mm. Um, but certainly if you ask somebody, a novice student teacher, and you have a coaching conversation instead of a mentoring conversation post a, a lesson or um, time with learners, that what they say may be far off the mark in terms of they don't have the contextual understanding of what is effective learning and what is effective pedagogy but the process of coaching is still requiring them to critically reflect and unpick mm -hmm. so even though they don't have the experience and they don't really know what it is they did wrong because you don't know what you don't know yeah I think it's still a nice relationship former that yes. if you have that as part of your relationship with your student teacher or anybody that you seek to you know mentor or coach that's really useful to hear. So going back to, uh, you, you mentioned that an important kind of end goal of, of these approaches is that schools are able to kind of take ownership for their own professional learning. You talked about it being a spectrum. So what does the kind of really positive, healthy end of that spectrum look like? What does a school culture look like if coaching is fully embedded? That's That's a tough question, really. But I would say... It would be one where you would have, I guess, informal peer coaching processes happening on a daily basis. So rather than staff formally identifying and forming triads where there's a fixed process that actually on a more of an informal basis, you'd have like coaching conversations quite a bit. Mm. Um, I know that I've known schools in the last sort of 10 years who were really trying to explore this distributed leadership culture and a collaborative culture um, that they were replacing formal um, performance management observations. So maybe there would be three in a year, um, one by head teacher, one by sort of a, a subject lead, uh, and one by maybe a performance manager, that one of those would be replaced with the peer coaching process. So actually there's not a formal feedback mechanism or there's not a formal target, it's staff leading that themselves. So I, I would like to be involved in a in a culture, an education climate where that's commonplace, mm. where staff, uh, and I believe we're going that way, you know, with, with Curriculum for Wales, where there's an awful lot more autonomy for professionals in school. 
but it'd be nice to see in that being the sort of norm where colleagues are saying, oh, well, at least once a year, one of my, you know, formal processes for management is, you know, that I'm involved in it myself and that somebody is coaching me. Mm -hmm. Informally, again, you know, it would be conversations you hear around corridors and it would be when staff need something, who do they go to? You know, it's, are they able to just go to anybody? Because really staff have a default mechanism where um, if somebody comes to you, you're going to answer a question with a question, mm. you know? Mm. And it's that no telling, just mm. prompting, just catalyzing. I like that. We think with pupils in schools, I often um, say to student teachers in sessions here that, you know, questioning is so powerful and we can go down the route of assessment for learning and all that. But fundamentally, if you develop a coaching culture in your own classroom, it's do you teach your learners how to ask the right questions and do they answer each other's questions or questions? Mm. And, you know, what questions do they ask you? Mm. Are they exploratory open questions or the closed questions? Mm. Um, when pupils are giving feedback, do they use coaching conversations as opposed to two stars and a wish? It's that culture where all of a sudden the ethos of peer coaching, the shared dialogue, the non-judgmental critical reflections the even better ifs, the what, what, you know, that sort of, you know, culture is just commonplace. And I think you'd, you'd taste it in the atmosphere when you walked in, it would be evident. Yeah, I was just about to say, it's something that you definitely couldn't fake in an Aston inspection. No, you know, it's something no. that would be very much in, in the yeah. air. You know? And we know with, with learners, you know, they're only ever going to be as brutally honest as they can be. Sure. So, it, you know, you, you do something, you know, for a short term gain like an observation, it's very hard for that to manifest the way you want it. But if it's an embed routine, embedded routine, mm -hmm. you know, those things show up positively in the long run because you've given those learners or you've given staff the time and space to, to make that um, a routine. I find myself wondering, given what you've just been saying, whether there's a sort of implied thing here that we need to look at the parameters of this mentoring role. I mean, I was a mentor. I loved it. I think it was probably my favourite part of the job. But in terms of the actual nuts and bolts parameters of doing that job, I think it probably still existed in its kind of historical situation where it was just throw a student in and, and see what rubs off, a sort of apprenticeship style role. All of the things you're saying here kind of make me think that while at the moment we have the sort of pastoral route to uh, to career glory and we have the kind of departmental route to, uh, you know, going up in the in the career the mentoring thing was always just something you did as a bit of a favour or because you liked it. Are you saying really that these people need a bit more time and space and love in the school environment than they get currently? I mean, it's, it's hard for me to, to comment on the sector as a whole. I do know that, you know, schools I go into, um, a lot of times success happens because of the hard work and the extra commitment of colleagues who position themselves as mentor and senior mentors. I mean, we're incredibly lucky as a partnership to have the school-based colleagues we do and, and what they do for the partnership and our student teachers is phenomenal. I think if you look at historically, the sort of role change, you know, not just mentor, but teacher. And if we don't have to go too much into it, but there's, you know, the reform that's taken place over the last sort of 60 or 70 years from the Education Act in 1944 to all the way to successful futures and teaching tomorrow's teachers in 2015. If you look at new professional standards, um, you look at OECD, their 2030 project, 2018, what's expected of a teacher in, in education in Wales 
is changing. And I think colleagues are working their absolute hardest and doing a fantastic job in schools to ensure that, that they mould and that they continue to develop alongside sort of educational reform um, driven by, you know, government policy. So I think it's almost giving them, if I was a student teacher, it would be giving them almost an informal, I understand that you are doing the best for me and, and you know, there's a lot to, to juggle with. But I also now understand that you as a professional, you know, have endured a lot of change. So actually, I'm quite thankful for what you do for me. And that if I can be more active as a student teacher, so I'm bringing you documentation and I'm quoting standards to you and I'm quoting processes to you and I know what's happening week by week as opposed to expecting you to lead that, then I'm actually giving you some of the space that Tom's just mentioned. I'm giving you some of the space you need to do your role really well um, because I can, I can manage a lot of the logistic things as a student and that might give you a bit more time and space to, to, you know, to, to mentor and coach me. And you mentioned off air, actually, that this was kind of hot topic at Bira. They gave a lovely analogy that you mentioned. I wonder if you would mind sharing yeah, that with no, the absolutely. listeners. Yeah, um, absolutely. Again, yeah, lucky enough to present at Bira uh, this past September a couple of uh, research papers and a phrase that I'd heard uh, quite a bit at Bira um, pertaining to sort of curriculum reform in Wales was reforming whilst flying the plane. And that really resonated with me and, and it, it instantly made me consider you know, school-based colleagues. Of course, in, in higher ed, um, teacher training institutions, we've gone through a lot of reform, but particularly in schools, you know, the just how much, you know, they have been working with and, and all the reform that's taking place and still to take place with the draft curriculum out at the moment. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes we need to stop and just accept that these colleagues are doing a fantastic job because they are essentially changing with their profession whilst flying the plane, which is no mean feet I think. I think that's a really nice uh, note to end this deep discussion on and true to form we've asked you to come with some of our our extra slots and I wonder if I might go a bit maverick here Tom and just asked if we can start with our something interesting because I know that you've you've actually selected something here that you know for those mentors out there who have been listening to this or indeed school colleagues who are interested in in following up some of the leads that Jordan has eloquently put across to you there what can they read what's their kind of first thing to go to yeah and I, you know, I, I, I came across, and I must be honest, uh, a colleague who works for UCL, uh, a lady named Caroline Daly, who has been incredibly influential on my my sort of career and and my learning to date. Presented uh, me um, some articles um, from uh, a person named um, Francis Langdon, and there's one in 2017, and it's called "Learning to Mentor." Unraveling routine practice to develop adaptive mentoring expertise, um, and I, I started reading that, and straight away was struck with this idea of dissonance, mm-hmm. this idea of professional dissonance. And and in that article on page three, there's a quote that in the absence of dissonance, the mentor is not challenged to rethink his or her practice, to critically stand back and examine the consequences of his or her actions. Mm. And that really made me think about how can we best challenge colleagues professionally and give them platforms to accept challenge. Mm. And then it made me think about if I was to be challenged, how comfortable would I be in that space? 
And then if I'm going to be challenged, who's going to be challenging me? And then I started to think if I was a, a, a sort of a mentor in schools today, would I be willing to give my student the platform to challenge me, yeah. to really challenge my actions and, and my advice? And then I wonder if the student would be comfortable to challenge. So I think there's a lot of layers to that, but that article particularly was really, really, really insightful and, and quite informative for me. The other one, if I may, again, Langdon, this one with a lady named uh, Lorraine Ward, uh, 2015. This, is, this one's called Educative Mentoring, A Way Forward. It's based in New Zealand, um, a lot of sort of mentoring development work there. And again, uh, I can't recommend it enough. Dr. Caroline Daly's reach is far and wide. I was she just is say. actually <laughs> somebody who inspired me. I don't think she actually knows this. If she ever listens to this, I would like to thank her because she's she's actually our external examiner uh, here at Cardiff Met on the Teach First program. Okay. And uh, yeah, and also a reader. She's based at UCL uh, in London and she, she's done a lot of work on uh, the professional learning and actually helping humble higher education institutions tutors like ourselves who are quite maybe being controversial here but quite low down in the pecking order of we were talking about refable uh, outputs in research um so you know giving us the the professional sort of confidence to to, to expand our, our knowledge and to improve our research informed practice so it's really good to hear you name checking her too because she's pretty inspiring as a Absolutely. as a colleague okay so lots to read lots to kind of follow up on Amidst all of this work, you must have some really good tips for looking after yourself and keeping yourself well. So so what would your tip to our listeners be for looking after your well-being? I mean, this is something that I think almost defines me now with colleagues. Um, I know colleagues at University of South Wales would giggle when I say this, but take solace in organisation. By that, I mean lean on being organised when things get too much, when the workload seems unbearable, it's being able to compartmentalize. It's being able to tick boxes on a daily basis. So I'm renowned for my post-it notes. I know colleagues there uh, who lean on more tech, you know, technology to, to do the same thing would you know, give me a telling off, but I, I'm, I'm a post-it note person, so I write things down. This sort of started when I was in the classroom and, and of course we know schools are very busy places mm. um, and there would always be 101 messages coming your way within and, and around lesson time. So I would always have to write things down to make sure that I didn't miss something important. And I sort of brought that to higher ed where I just write things down and I try to do it quickly. So if I was a student, I would have a post-it note on me. Um, and I would be making notes, whether they're just simple observational notes or stuff in the lesson or just things as they sort of arrive to my thinking or as somebody, you know, presents it to me. And then I guess it's being realistic. I'm borderline OCD in the fact that I want to be perfect. And it took me a couple of years to realize that perfection is almost unobtainable. You know, I, I used to try and, you know, keep my classroom as tidy and organized as possible and I'd be forever putting lids on pens and just I wanted to leave the day and then I you know not that I wanted to go the opposite way but it's being realistic about a day's work I think mm. and, I, and I know student teachers worldwide work incredibly hard as do you know colleagues in school and I think when you can accept that I, I've done my bit today and 
write things down yet to come, you know, have it mapped out in your diary. So, I, I, you know, every day is accounted for for me from now to February. Like I, I, I literally have to work that way. But I can leave the school or the university or the, my place of work knowing that everything is in a hand. Mm -hmm. There's still an awful lot to do on my to-do list, but it's accounted for. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. that that's key. Mm -hmm. um, so be organized. Well, I have to say, as someone who's been the, on the receiving end of a fair amount of teasing for my obsessive use of calendar invitations, I think we need to go for a drink, Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> Send me a calendar invite. I will. <laughs> And uh, finally, going full circle, uh, back to coaching and mentoring, you've got something to try that uh, is derived from one of the Langdon sources that you mentioned a few minutes ago. Yeah, and I sort of think of this in twofold, really. I think if I was a student teacher, I'd want to look at this with my mentor. So I'd want to consider how this dissonance could appear in the relationship I have with my mentor. And of course, it's something that mentor and student would need to discuss. But I wonder if there's sufficient opportunity for both to critically challenge query prompt around the sort of process and, and you know, the tasks at hand. And the other one, I think, which is perhaps a bit more straightforward is with my learners. So I would always have a process of a little gimmicky thing like um, critical critters, where I'm, I'm rewarding students who challenge you know, who just don't accept. And I know this, you know, really does tie in with the four purposes of Curriculum for Wales, you know, ambitious, capable, ethical. Mm -hmm. um, can they stop and think for themselves? So can I put processes in place, reward schemes, you know, highlight best practice amongst my learners where they're being critical and they're questioning things. I've used it in university where I've sort of questioned, query, challenge. So I'll, I'll anonymously hand out cards prior to a session. So I might hide them under tables. So wherever somebody sits, they then unveil, they reach under and they pull out a query. So at some point they have to query something that's been said. So it's putting those formal processes in place with your pupils or your students. That is almost enforcing an opportunity to say, challenge, come on, challenge me. And I think as long as parties involved are happy that it's not personal it's professional mm -hmm. so I'm very quick to say to students it's you know it's not me as a person you know I'm, my practice is forever forming and shaping so tell me what you think so that's something I would try great well, I was just thinking this episode's coming out at a really opportune time for student teachers on PGCEs because certainly our student teachers are just rounding off their first placement where maybe they've been putting the nuts and bolts in place and they're starting a fresh relationship with a new mentor in a new school. So perhaps it's a really good moment to just reiterate to student teachers that uh, if you're listening to this as it comes out mid-academic year the time is maybe now that you need to move yourselves on from maybe a passive consumer of instructions to an active facilitator of a coaching relationship so thanks Jordan for that it's been both. really timely okay well thank you so much for joining us Jordan and hopefully we'll have you back in the future to give us some more nuggets of the uh, of the ongoing research that you'll be continuing to do I'm sure thank Thank you very much. Oh, thank you both. That was Emma and Tom's PGC podcast presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. The special guest this episode was me, Jordan Allers. This episode was also brought to you by Francis Langdon, whose literature is a great starting point for anyone wanting to explore coaching roles in education. We'll be back in a fortnight and you'll probably get a calendar invite from Tom to remind you about it. We're off to reform the podcast plane whilst we're flying it. Until next time, take care and enjoy teaching and mentoring. <laughs>